But up first, uh, we do connect with longtime Vancouver Park Board Commissioner John Cooper. You likely heard him yesterday on the program. I said we're going to need to talk to you after the emergency park board meeting that went down last night. The subject, changes to Stanley Park um, coming without public consultation. The hope was to, to find some middle ground on this. John Cooper joins us on the line. Hi, John. Happy Friday, Jody. <laughs> Is it a happy Friday? What happened last well, night? Tell us. Well, it was a little disappointing because I, the, the motion that I had was to open the park up to pre-COVID so that people could get back to enjoying the park. And then we could perhaps deal with uh, some of the thing, changes that folks are talking about and have the public and our stakeholders involved. That, that obviously they came to the meeting, a lot of them spoke. They cut off the speakers before everybody had a chance to speak. So we got through about, I believe, about 75 speakers last night. I think there were 118 speakers registered. I've never seen a vote at, uh, in a, you know, at the park board in my eight years there where we have voted before listening to all the opinions of the speakers who took the time to sign up and had been waiting. And I think the proper thing would have been to you know, roll a meeting over to another evening. Just like 15 minutes ago, I guess it was when my little promo that said we were going to talk about this was on the air or when I was with Mike Smith and I got an email from Maureen. I want to read a, a bit of it to you. She's very well thought out here. She says, Jody, my thoughts as a seasoned park board meeting attendee, feel free to read this on the air, even if only point B, because she knows it's, it's a fairly long email. So she says, as a person who has been pretty well at every park board meeting for five and a half years, that meeting was an embarrassment, a disgrace and an affront to democracy. A, the City of Vancouver promised that they wouldn't proceed with public hearings if the technology wasn't able to support it, and that they certainly wouldn't proceed on controversial subjects. The stream cut out about a dozen times last evening. The meeting was scheduled to last till 11.59, so it cut out and we were not able to hear the debate on the motion and nor on the vote. If they had allowed all speakers to actually speak, I'm not sure how this would have been possible. The Green folks and COPE think that their time is more valuable than actually listening to their constituents, and I was appalled that their first order of business was to deny a significant number of people from speaking to the motion. She goes on to say that there were other um, park board meetings that have gone till 3.15 in the morning. Actually, she says, I was never a Vision Vancouver fan, but those folks at least committed to full public consultation and sat until 3.15 in the morning. February 4th, 2013, to hear every single speaker and goes on about how she really felt cut out of this, not being able to even see how the motion went down, how the debate and the vote actually went. Why not keep the, the live stream going beyond 1159? Yeah, well, it's, it's like I said yesterday, you know, it's a real concern when we make a big change to something like Stanley Park and the public are not aware of it. A lot of people, a lot of seniors who wanted to speak had trouble with the technology. You know, it was just, it's just not acceptable. And, you know, the full plan is not even public yet, and it is moving forward on Monday. So what's going to happen is we're going to see uh, no exit from the park by vehicles other than the Georgia Street exit. So you won't be able to go around on the park drive and come back over the Burrard Bridge, perhaps home if you live on the west side, which is what I, we used to do for many years. You know, you go in in Georgia and you come out on beach and then you, and you go home over the Burrard Bridge. You're going to be rerouted back around and you're going to have to go through the city traffic again to get home. Uh, there's going to be bright orange plastic dividers all throughout the park to separate these two lanes, which I think in such a beautiful location is going to be an abomination. Yeah. The other thing that's really interesting is the bikes get the right-hand lane, so they get the water side, 
the, the, the cars or taxis or tour buses get the left-hand side, so their view is going to be obscured somewhat by these bright orange cones. There's a, a whole lot of things that are happening, and I don't think people have, woke, have any clue that this is happening. It's, it's outrageous. We're with Park Board Commissioner John Cooper. Can you explain what your motion that you put on the table said that was replaced by the one that is now going, uh, that has been voted upon by the Green Cope Alliance? They have a majority, so uh, it was sort of yeah, pre, my, preordained, of, was it not? Uh, of my fellow NPA Commissioner, Tricia Barker, and I was to open the park to its pre-COVID um, transportation plan. So that would mean two lanes of traffic, cyclists would go back on the seawall, which is one of the greatest um, rides in the world and you know that's the way it is in the rest of the city the seawall has remained open the bike paths have remained open all of our other parks are open queen elizabeth park is open we would just be going back to normal and then not normal the new normal because people are learning to social distance you know people are being careful when they get close to each other they move to one side and we've learned a lot and i think everybody's done a good job and i'm the last person who wants people not to be to be safe but uh so what what, what it was replaced with was to ask staff to move over, move to this temp, what they call a temporary plan, to take one lane of the the uh, Stanley Park Drive and give it to cyclists, and it also will have a reduction of thirty percent. Let me say that again: thirty percent of the parking in Stanley Park overall will be removed as a result of this new expanded uh, bike lane. Um, in the two most for instance, at Brockton Point, where you used to be able to drive right around the point, you're mm-hmm. not going to go there. You're, you, that is going to be excluded from automobiles in the future. And also, uh, at both Prospect Point and the Tea House, they're going to lose quite a number of parking spots there. So that's going to be detrimental to their business. So this is a huge change. And, and like I said yesterday, we do more consultant consultation with stakeholders and the public on a playground. Uh, this is Stanley Park, and uh, you know it just doesn't sit very well with me. So we weren't able to see the debate on this. What was the what was put forward as reasoning for making this happen mid pandemic? Because as you said, if, if if going back to sort of the the pre COVID, it isn't broken Stanley Park before there is public consultation here, um, when bikes and and pedestrians would share the seawall. Bikes could still use Stanley Park Drive and share the road with these yes, slow-moving yeah. vehicles. It's a it's a thirty kilometer an hour cap throughout Stanley Park Drive, right? Yeah. Of course. And do bike do well, cyclists they're, they're, have to adhere to that as well? Are, are they held to that speed limit well, as well? Well, they 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 are supposed to. I don't know that there's much enforcement. But here's the other interesting mm-hmm. thing. So there was uh, we had a briefing just before the meeting, and there was a transportation person from the city, and I asked the question. I said, okay, so the bike lanes. The bikes uh, have to stay in the bike lanes, right? No, no, that's not actually true. A bike has the same status as an an automobile. So while the cars will have to stay in the one lane, the bikes, there's nothing legally to prevent them from continuing to use both lanes. Both lanes. So, So, John, why, why not share the road without the ugly orange divider? Why not just simply share the road as we have for decades in Stanley Park? Is, are there statistics that show that it is deadly for cyclists to ride the park drive? No, there is, there's, there are statistics that show that. And the other thing is we don't really have a lot of statistics around uh, auto, auto, auto use. And we don't know how many people come in 
in necessarily in each vehicle. So where a cyclist is one cyclist and they're tracking those numbers generally, unless they've got a little trailer behind, um, vehicles, we don't know how many people are in them. So, But we do know in a normal year, we get 12 million people. And Nancy Stibbert, who is the CEO of the Capilano Group, has done surveys and said up about 88% or 89% of the the, the, the the people arrive by cars or buses. So, uh, you know, and, and somebody said last night, they, apparently there was an experiment done in the 80s, and I wasn't aware of that, but they did do this once before. They closed down one lane, and apparently the traffic was backed up down Georgia like you couldn't believe. So it's... Um, It'll be an interesting- I remember that. I remember that vividly. Yeah. And it was about it was about two way traffic to get to the tea house. And we actually have a tour bus operator coming up after the twelve thirty news to tell that tale exactly because he lived it. Well, we haven't uh, we haven't met with the people with respect to what the next step will be. I know that people are upset, and I started getting calls late last night and early this morning, and uh, so it's premature. And I don't want to say anything yet without a uh, complete consultation with the pe- people who are, uh, who are adversely affected. But I'm very disturbed as a citizen of Vancouver that, that they would go ahead and do this. And they didn't talk to the police, didn't talk to fire people, and they just went ahead and did this because in their opinion, in their, uh, in their world, this is the best thing to do. And uh, it's a type of arrogance that really tells us that they know what's best for all of us. That is uh, Wally Opal, former uh, BC Attorney General, and uh, we're with John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. And one of the things that just jumped out at me there was no consultation with police or fire. You're closing a lane in Stanley Park to vehicle traffic and no consultation with emergency response. How does this happen, John? Well, I, you know, I, I not a, I'm not specifically aware of that. I have certainly heard from a number of different parties. I have not heard from... Uh, the VPD or Vancouver Fire Rescue Services. So it would be, it wouldn't really be right to comment on that. But w- all I can say is a number of proponents in the park don't feel that they've been adequately uh, brought into the picture consulted. and, and yeah. consulted with. So th- that's probably as far as I'd like to go uh, on that. Okay. How about the uh, question that I'm getting a lot of in my inbox, Jody at cknw.com. I just got this one. Did you know that the city of Vancouver does not own Stanley Park, that they lease it from the federal government? Maybe we should get our MPs involved. This park belongs to Canada and should be easily accessed by all who want to visit. I'm sure you've gotten that question and query before. Yeah, and that's the, the, uh, the, the uh, actually I have the original um, lease document because I've been doing a little research on that. On this, so uh, it was uh, an order in council in, of 1887 um, to, to be leased, and then and then later on it was it was kind of finalized, and and then it's at least it's a 99 year lease that renews in in perpetuity. So uh, there are various uh, clauses within within the lease that uh, do give uh, certainly the Department of National Defense. Uh, some powers, uh, and and they certainly need to um, uh, be consulted as well. So one of the terms in there, it says here, the Minister of Militia and Defense, that's an old term, but shall have the full power to resume and take possession without compensation of any portion of said lands or any buildings now or hereafter to be erected. 
whatever they be required, it is judgment for any military purpose whatsoever. What what whatsoever. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, there's a there's <laughs> these things are these are old documents, but I think they probably still hold some weight today. Where do we go from here, John? Well, I think you know this is obviously this is moving forward. Uh, the, they had had the votes to do that. I think it's important for the public to. Uh, let people know that they they care a lot about Stanley Park and they want to make sure um, that um, you know they have really good access to it. And I think people need to watch this closely. It's been we've been told it's a trial, um, although the, I, I think it's rare for spice lane trials to come down in Vancouver. It may have happened in a couple of instances, I'm told, but I, it's not the norm. And uh, the other thing, it seems to be happening very fast after the, the decision of even a week ago that the board they were asked to look into. Um, you know, restricting traffic, and now we have a full-blown plan and we're ready to go uh, almost immediately. Um, you know, I think people may want to reflect on that. And we're, we're getting that mindset of, okay, here we go again. Something's being rammed down our throats as Vancouverites, and we're not being asked our opinions on it. So now it's happening. There's really nothing we can do to stop it. I'm the grand we here, the people that are calling in and filling up our, our email inboxes. Where do we go to express our dislike of how this process was managed? Where does one, um, like sending it to me and telling me your thoughts is great, but I can't really do anything. So where do I direct people? Yeah, if you anybody can email Park Board Commissioners, and that's PB Commissioners, two M's, two S's, with an S on the end, at Vancouver.ca. So PB Commissioners at Vancouver.ca. And you can find that if you go to Vancouver.ca and, and put in search for Park Board Commissioners, and it'll sure, pop up. You, and you, you, do you these just, emails go directly to the individual Park Board Commissioners, or does they it go? go to all, they go to all commissioners at the same time. So if somebody sends that, all seven commissioners will get that email and you know include myself pb commissioners at vancouver.ca vancouver.ca a lot can be done that could that could be a two 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 s's and two m's in the middle two s's right commissioners so and an s at the end gotcha so people could do a, a rather online public consultation by utilizing that email address. That's somewhere. Sure. That's somewhere and, to start. I, and, and people have been continuing to sign this petition, which after I think a week is up to 14,000 signatures, which is, um, I don't think I've seen one that big that fast before. So people yeah. really care about Stanley Park. It's a green jewel. It's, uh, it's so people have so many memories there, so many family memories there, and they want to make sure they have access. And especially seniors and folks with any kind of mobility issues, um, they want to make sure there's enough parking for them. They want to make sure they're, they're able to park close enough to the facilities that they need to use. And so I think um, we need to keep a close eye on this. And, um, you know, access uh, for all. Yeah. Access for all is best that we can do. And, uh, you know, the majority world, the park board is a great institution. You know, I, I care deeply about it, as you know. And, and um, you know, I, I think it's, it's important that people don't necessarily uh, take this out on the institution. This is a this is a, a you know a move that the commissioners have voted on, and um, perhaps they can be persuaded to change their mind. I, I had hoped for that last night, but it didn't happen. Well, John Cooper, we appreciate the fact that we would not have the Bloedel Conservatory if it were not for you and your role in the Park Board. Uh, we appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, as always, John. Thank you very we're much. Have pa- a great Friday. 
Continuing with our conversation about Stanley Park, the Park Board meeting, the emergency meeting last night that went till midnight and beyond, uh, 116 people signed up to speak, 48 were given an opportunity to actually address the Park Board meeting, 73% of those who were able to speak were in favour of returning Stanley Park to its pre-COVID access, not making any changes without full and complete public consultation. Many of those who were opposed to the now being built bike lane, uh, the right lane with those orange dividers, the plastic dividers that uh, John Cooper was explaining to us in our last segment, um, those opposed to that are saying that this is an accessibility problem. People can talk about parking issues, how to get to and from restaurants, the impact on the restaurants. But at the end of the day, this is also about how do you get emergency vehicles around Stanley Park when there's a horse-drawn carriage in the only lane for vehicles. There's so many more pieces to this puzzle than just bikes versus cars. So with the news from last night's marathon meeting uh, and the Cope Green Commissioners push ahead to their changes without public consultation, they are building that separated bike lane right now. Park Drive is supposed to open one lane for cars on Monday, the inside lane, the uh, the the water side lane, it will be the bike lane. And with 12 million visitors each year to Stanley Park, uh, lots of tour buses. We've seen them. We received an email actually from Jeff Vino, longtime CKNW listener and uh, tour bus driver who wanted to have his say. So we thought, why not? Let's get Jeff on the line. We're glad to have you join us, Jeff. Welcome. You're uh, filling in as a replacement when uh, needed, but uh, we need more of you. Oh, well, thank you very much. I very much Long appreciate time that. Long-time fan of talk- yours. I appreciate that, Jeff. And, I, you know, in reading your email when you reached out to uh, producer Ben Dooley, and I understand you've been on with Jill before uh, talking on other topics, uh, it really peaked for me because not a lot of people remember uh, what you were referencing with regard to changes in Stanley Park done uh, a few decades ago. I do remember these, and I remember the mayhem surrounding it. Can you lay it out for your fellow listener? What what did you witness all those years ago? Well, somewhere in the late 1990s, 98, 99, some, somewhere in that time frame, um, whether it was the Tea House Restaurant or it was the Park Board, uh, somebody got the idea to open Stanley Park Drive from Second Beach uh, up to the Tea House Restaurant. The thinking was a car that wants to go to the Tea House Restaurant full of patrons that don't want to have to drive all the way around the park to get there could just come along Beach Avenue, go up the park drive as far as as far as the Tea House Restaurant at Ferguson Point or Third Beach, and they could just park their car, go to the restaurant, and then just leave normally. Well, that was fine and dandy until you come to the weekends and uh, Saturday and Sunday in particular. You have a lot of additional tourists, local tourists, not just tourists from out of town, visiting the park, uh, taking their kids down, especially in the afternoon. Well, when you get, as you know, when you get a situation where there are normally two lanes somewhere and one lane is closed off for whatever reason, the one lane that's open will back right up. Well, the traffic backups used to go all the way along Park Drive from Ferguson Point or the the tea house restaurant, not only all the way back to Prospect Point, but all the way along the drive, all the way back to the west side of the park, all because of the congestion caused by so many cars trying to use, uh, formerly used to having two lanes and now only having the one lane. So uh, it was an experiment that was tried and it didn't last all that long because the outrage was reaching the powers that be pretty quickly. 
And that's the important piece is, is this needs to be a public consultation change to Stanley Park because there are many moving parks. There's collateral damage here that people can't even predict at this point. And what really piques it for me is that we're in the midst of a pandemic. We have no idea what this will look like post-pandemic, how people will move around, how we will interact, how much will have changed in our city. What we know for sure is that Stanley Park is for all. And to be able to go down with a loved one who wouldn't be able to necessarily go to a, a, you know, Park Royal parking lot to get on an electric bus that is then going to take them around Stanley Park and then drop them back off at Park Royal and then get back in their car and drive back to Langley. I mean, that's just unrealistic. And that's what's being sort of sort of thrown down here. And you as a tour bus driver, if it takes you two hours to get around the park, I mean, you are showing off the majesty of our city, but you don't want to be stuck in traffic while doing that. No, and most of the uh, uh, tourists on these uh, tour buses, the uh, not the hop-on, hop-off buses, but the other highway tour coach the sh- coaches that you see, and by the way, you see none of them around the city right now because all of them are parked with no plates. Hundreds of us are not working, guides, drivers, you name it. Anyway, the... the um, the shuttle idea, by the that. way, of running a shuttle around Stanley Park is a bad idea because, first of all, if you run it with TransLink, it costs a fortune, and every stop has more people trying to get on the bus than you have seats available. You need a fleet of buses that will just surround the park. But here's the other thing, Jody. Not all the players. Now, this, this experiment that's coming up, on Monday will probably work for the most part. There probably won't be too many issues, really, because uh, not all the players are at work. Not everyone is back at work, including tour buses, tour drivers, and so on. So one lane for bikes, one lane for cars, probably move along fine, except... If you're taking some of the parking, uh, so the curb lane, which is where a lot of people slow down to show people the sites, including tour buses, uh, if they can't slow down anywhere and they won't be able to, there'll be no parking on the left side of that lane that's open for the cars, they'll want to try to get into the parking lot of the Totem Poles Prospect Point, just to use two places as an example. Well, mm-hmm. some of the parking at Prospect Point is going to be lost, which is a, just a colossal mistake, and I'm glad that they, uh, the uh, certain people have hired Wally Opal to look into that. It's just craziness. They don't need those, the stalls in that parking lot. But if you have, you know what it's like when you're on Granville Island, Jody, you're in your car, you've decided you're going down there by your car. One car in front of you spots a motorist who's about to leave. 20 minutes later, when that motorist has finally put the key in his ignition and has started to leave, and the other car can now park, the one that's blocking your path can now take the stall that's become available, how bad is the, are the cars being backed up? Well, that's going to happen at the totem poles and a prospect point and a few other spots where cars will be trying to get into a parking lot. The parking lot's full. They start to see someone leaving. The cars will all back up in the one lane that's open. The, the point about the emergency vehicles is right on. They're not going to be able to get by. The the stuck behind the horse-drawn carriage is another aspect of you. Uh, to do a proper tour of the, of, the, of the Stanley Park, by the way, you need to drive slowly and to be able to point things out that are across the harbor from us, the city, the, the second Arrows Iron Workers Bridge, the North Shore, to point out the things like the Harry Jerome statue, the 9 o'clock gun, the girl in a wetsuit statue, uh, the Lionsgate Bridge. You, don't, you, 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 don't, you can't talk a mile a minute with the tourists. Uh, mind you, if the traffic backs up, We'll have plenty of time to talk because we <laughs> right. will be stuck in a, in a congestion uh, uh, fiasco. There's going to have to be, if they're going to put these barricades up for the moment, uh, again, 
not all the players are, this summer it might work fine but i'm saying in the in next summer if we're all back in full blown tourism mode all the restaurants hotels tour buses operating again cruise ships are here uh, there's going to be a lot of congestion in the park. There'll be a lot of slow pinch points. And uh, the, the traffic tour buses, by the way, run on a, believe it or not, they're on a schedule. They're trying to get in Stanley Park. They're trying to get maybe to Yale Town, Chinatown, Gastown, Queen Elizabeth Park, perhaps, Granville Island, perhaps, or somewhere. And mm-hmm. to lose half an hour or 45 minutes being stuck in traffic, like those days when we had that two-lane experiment going up to the tea house. It just it just creates you know you're you're running late for the, an appointment or to get people towards the towards the airport because sometimes people take a tour in the morning and then they're and on need their to way get to the on their way the yeah vehicle. no I yeah. I totally hear you Jeff very well said thank you so much for taking some time for us today and and bringing your perspective I am opening the phone 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. Nine eight or star nine eight nine eight on your cell. That's a toll free call, hands free if you're driving, please. And let me know what you think on this topic. Six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight. And Jeff, I just wanted to say that that your perspective is is so on top of it because I think we could all agree that mid pandemic, nobody really complained about closing it down completely to cars when we were all looking for social distancing and a place to get out and be active and in a safe manner. Uh, it's that we are trying to or our park board commissioners are trying to plan for post-pandemic when none of us know what that looks like and yeah I, well i've been talking to my friend to gordon price this morning and yeah. he thinks that we, we we should give it a whirl but uh, yeah all the players aren't in play this summer it yeah. may work this summer but i i don't think in a full regular normal summer that it will uh, you'll, you're going to have problems Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. And boy, oh boy, this next story. Big breaking news today as Health Minister Adrian Dix actually held a an impromptu press briefing when he announced he's launched an investigation into alleged racist acts in B.C. emergency rooms. Have a listen. These uh, issues came to my attention last night. Uh, they're serious allegations. They obviously need to be investigated uh, so that we determine the extent of them. And that's what Marilyn Terpel-Lafont will do. But it also requires recommendations, remedies, and reconciliation going forward. And I'll be seeking, obviously, her recommendations and advice and others as to the next steps. I think, uh, I don't know if you, were, uh, if you heard some of the details of, the, of what the allegations are. They involve a game being, being played, guessing the blood alcohol level of patients in the ER, in particular Indigenous patients, and the obvious effect of such games being played on patient care. And so uh, it's, of course, important to determine the facts, but it's also important to work together to take action and to move forward. Yeah, it is important to determine the facts, but holy cow, this is a massive report uh, unearthed here. And that announcement was actually sparked by uh, the the CEO of the Métis Nation of British Columbia, uh, Daniel Fontaine. He saw this report about the Price is Right game. I don't know. All I can tell you is that I did alert uh, the minister's office late yesterday afternoon and into the evening that I became aware of this. And I did indicate to them that we would be making a public statement on this uh, this morning. So that, that beyond that, I don't know uh, what uh, the minister or the, the senior levels of the Ministry of Health were aware or not aware. I, I can tell you from my Ministry of Health staff, they've advised that, um, that the statement from the worker would lead one to believe that this goes beyond a single hospital and a single employee. 
that this goes well beyond that. And when you juxtapose it with the report that was released back in March of 2019, it's very disturbing that these are not, uh, this, is, this Price is Right game is not a, a one-off. It is part of a much larger problem that needs to be dealt with and needs to have a, a resolution to soon. We can't wait another four or five or six more months for this. We need to get some action on this quickly. And I'm hoping that if this is discovered and there are individuals who are, in fact, participating in this game, and if they're listening to this show today, I hope that they're held accountable for that type of activity. And I hope that uh, they are no longer working in our healthcare system to ensure that people who are uh, wanting that, that care and are Indigenous in this province don't have to, to face that type of racism anymore. Unbelievable statements there and fully on side with what Daniel Fontaine uh, was saying there. Again, the CEO, the chief executive officer of Métis Nation, British Columbia, basically calling out anybody who takes part in this Price is Right game in emergency rooms in British Columbia. If you're listening right now, you should uh, step forward uh, and and identify how incredibly racist those acts were uh, and take the consequences that should be coming for this. It's hard to believe that this all comes to light from a report of March of 2019. It is really quite something. We are connecting now, I hope, with Leslie Varley. We're having some issues uh, reaching out and connecting. Uh, Leslie Varley is the Executive Director of the BC Association of Aboriginal Friendship Centres uh, on the line now. Leslie, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is a stomach-turning piece of breaking news today. Give us your perspective on on how you learned of it and and what the details behind this report are. Isn't it horrific? Yeah. It is. The the thing about this is this happens every day in the healthcare system, and um, it's certainly prevalent in emergency departments in hospitals, but it's not news to me. Um, there's been thousands and thousands of cases. We were advised by Cheryl Ward, Dr. Cheryl Ward from the Provincial Health Services Authority. She's the Executive Director of Indigenous Health. And she and I, in 2008, developed the Sanyas Indigenous Cultural Safety Training Program for the healthcare workers in the province. And um, we were, you know, we, we received thousands and thousands of examples of this far worse and far worse uh, cases of uh, indigenous specific racism in the healthcare system. So much so that we could see patterns of and hotspots of where racism exists and, and uh, what departments they exist in throughout BC. Why the lack of will to address this then? Like, Until now, until Black Lives Matter and, you know, the protests in the States, yeah, I I would ask that question myself. You know, data was provided to senior leaders in the health authority for many years. And and frankly, I left out of the frustration that nothing would happen and that I could, you know, work within Indigenous community and advocate from this side because, you know, that kind of information often gets buried. And they didn't want us to you know, to talk about this. They begged us not to go to the media about it. So, you know, these are internal processes that nobody gets to learn about because they're stifled, you know, by the health authority. And, um, and we're, not, we're, not, we're not supported as health authority staff to, to, uh, to speak up about these issues or and certainly as Indigenous employees not supported to 
you know, um, to really advocate. I mean, if you're a really good advocate, you're likely to lose your job in a health authority because people historically have not really wanted to hear this information. Well, the tides are turning on that, and let's hope they are, because this is absolutely unacceptable and, and clearly blatant racism happening right under our noses here in British Columbia in, of all places, our emergency rooms, doctors and nurses. And, and if, if, if true, allegations at this point, and Mary Ellen Terpel lafond will join Linda Steele at 345 today. She will be conducting the uh, investigation as per um, Health Minister Adrian Dix. But what Daniel Fontaine said earlier, how this game of, of Price is Right is being played when when an indigenous person comes into an emergency room, they play a game to see who can uh, hit the blood alcohol level number of this person without going over. I, I just don't understand how that even can come into play in what we have systemically seen across the board. Our ERs have always been so busy. All we do is talk about how people are lined up trying to get the care that we need. And uh-huh. prices, right games, and and then no consequence. Where identifying these employees, will they be protected? Will will there be like the suspension? Suspension's not enough. Yeah. Well, historically, um, there has been a protection of health staff. The the um, the the challenge and the problem is that racism is part of you know, a patient quality care, and it becomes a learning experience. It's, it's lumped in with medical errors, and they become learning experiences for the health authority. And, you know, I constantly argued when I was there that racism should not be part of, of that system. People should be held accountable for racist behavior, trained and given the opportunity to change their behavior. And if not, they shouldn't be working in the healthcare system. But, um, you know, there's Or any walk of, of life, really, of any... <laughs> Like, I mean, that's, that's where we're headed. Yeah. Yeah. So what about the bystanders? What about the people who, in your experience, somebody who may have witnessed something like this, not maybe not this game, but some other form of racism in our healthcare system and reported it? Well, there are a lot of bystanders who are um, speaking up, but, you know, first of all, indigenous bystanders don't feel safe speaking up, even though they might be witnessing, you know, their brother or their mother or their son, um, you know, having this thing. So it's not safe for us to speak up for ourselves. We uh, worry that we're going to get kicked out of that hospital and then nobody's going to look after our health care. So we remain silent. Non-Indigenous bystanders who witness it, I'm not sure how how safe they feel speaking up about these issues, but it's, it's not very often that people actually do speak up. Uh, and we, we were trying to train people to be good allies, and advocate yeah. for for this. That's part of the training, um, but um, it doesn't. You know, it's not happening enough. That's for sure. Because we're still dealing with, you know, these kind of negative stereotypes that all Indigenous people are drunks and alcoholics and drug seeking. Um, that we're not fully human is another prevalent stereotype in Canada. That Indigenous people are not fully human. It's the same kind of thinking as black people in the United States. And and that's the stereotype here about us. And having these conversations, having the difficult discussions, not remaining silent and being an advocate and an ally, no matter what your religion, skin color, walk of life might be, it is time to stand together and, and very, um, I acknowledge and I applaud your, um, yours and Daniel's 
um, strength and bravery in coming forward with this in, in, in very straightforward terms, Leslie. And thank you for taking some time out for us today. Thank you. Most of us woke up to the breaking news that the two Michaels, Corvig and Spavor, the two Canadians who've been jailed in China since December of 2018, have now been charged with espionage. Here's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau this morning. We are, of course, disappointed with the decision uh, and the next step taken by the Chinese uh, in the case of the two Michaels, and we offer uh, all our support and sympathies to uh, the families of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who uh, are obviously living a a difficult moment today, as they have been for well over a year with the arbitrary detention of two Canadian citizens. To talk through what this means for these men being held and if there is anything that can be done to bring them home, we connect with Vancouver journalist for the Toronto Star. Jeremy Nuttall joins us. Hello there, Jeremy. Hi, Jody. How are you? I'm good. It's a busy, busy news day. And certainly this news, uh, most of us opened our eyes to this morning, uh, watching um, the state TV announcement in China where all we could really understand, most of us anyway, the um, the names being said and, and how the uh, official charges have come down for the two Michaels. What does this mean for these two men at this point? Well, uh, a few years ago, it would have been easier to say what it would mean. Um, back then, it probably would have meant a swift conviction um, and maybe, maybe after a little bit of time, a commuted sentence and then automatic deportation. Um, however, with China's current uh, aggressions around the world in terms of uh, you know, trade trade disputes with the states in Australia and arresting uh, foreigners in the country, it could it could mean they uh, are, are sentenced to a heck of a lot of longer uh, time. Um, you know, I, I've spoken to a few people today, including former ambassador to China uh, Guy Saint Jacques, and he said that uh, the two are probably going to get life sentences. Uh, but now what we're kind of, you know, have to wait for to see is if those sentences will just be commuted and they'll be sent home right away or if they'll make them serve 10 years or so. Right. Because if this is retaliation for the Meng Wanzhou uh, ruling recently, I mean, this all started back in December of 2018. Um, they've, they've both now been formally charged with spying after spending so many hundreds of days in a room, we're told, where the lights are kept on 24-7 with very little contact with any sort of legal support, no real uh, support or contact with their families. Um, it, will they have any opportunity for a legitimate defense here? And knowing that the fact that in China, um, cases end with 99.999% of convictions. I mean, is this is this all just sort of theater that we're watching play out here as China is trying to... Uh, it, exact a little payback to our government? Uh, It absolutely is theater. Um, These two will not get a fair trial. Um, That is what's been explained to me by people who have gone through the Chinese legal system. Um, The typical typical way that it's done, according to people who have been through it and what they tell me, is the questions and answers are scripted in court uh, between the defense and prosecution even. Um, There is a completely uh, predetermined result uh, and your chances of, of, of even being able to call witnesses or see the evidence is also very limited. In this particular case, I've been told that because it's a national security issue, even the defense will not be allowed to see the evidence the state has against the two men. Unbelievable. We're with Vancouver journalist with the Toronto Star, Jeremy Nettle. I've only got a couple minutes here, but I want to know what you anticipate 
um, happening with regard to how our government might react to it. Watching uh, Prime Minister Trudeau speak to it uh, this morning at his briefing, it seemed like very carefully crafted wording. Yeah, I think that a lot of observers uh, are, are sort of saying that it's time to stop that. Uh, yeah. the, the Liberal government has been trying for quite some time to uh, uh, find a peaceful and diplomatic end to this, and it simply hasn't worked. Um, and some of the people that I've spoken to today about this have said it is time for a, a much tougher approach. Uh, it's time to do things like bring in Magnitsky legislation against certain Chinese officials. Uh, it's time to look really hard at uh, Chinese state-owned companies that own assets here in Canada. Uh, it's time to uh, team up with Canada's allies around the world to kind of counter the uh, attempts at China's influence uh, abroad. Uh, so if the Canadian government will actually take that advice, uh, it's, that really remains to be seen. So far, they have been very uh, reticent to do any kind of an aggressive uh, approach with China. Well, diplomacy doesn't seem to be moving the meter much at all. Jeremy, thanks for doing this. Yeah, no worries. Have a good day. It's going to be quite uh, an unfolding story. The drama continues for these two men who clearly are not guilty of espionage, but yet in a Chinese jail cell since December. Uh, we have been doing it all week. we got to keep doing it because checking in with Cicchini always fills us with all of the pertinent information coming from the United States, and there is a lot to cover off. So we connect with Reggie Cicchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News. Hi, Reggie. Happy Friday. Indeed. And another busy day. Let's start by actually looking back a couple of weeks when you and I were talking and actually we we're going back and forth uh, by Twitter DM. I was really concerned for your well-being while you were out there covering uh, the protests and in fact riots that were happening outside of the White House. Um, there have been some ramifications that carry forward to today. Can you can you share that with us? Yeah, look, there have been uh, some concerns that over the last several weeks with these protests that have been taking place that uh, it could lead to a potential spike in uh, positive cases of the coronavirus around the country. Uh, and we are now seeing that the number of people who are being tested and testing positive are on the rise, most notably throughout the U.S. South, through the Sun Belt, anywhere from Florida over towards California. Uh, there isn't a direct correlation yet to uh, the number of people who are in these protests to the number of positive cases out there, but it is still a concern for doctors given the fact that it is a two-week incubation period, uh, and if you were tested early on, it may come back as a negative, and you may need to go and get tested again. Right, that could be a false negative. And then the mayor of D.C. has asked that everybody be tested if they attended a uh, rally, and not to make this all about you, but you were tested for COVID-19 today. What was that like? Uh, it's it's uh, it's a it's an awful and, and uh, very uncomfortable test to get done. But yeah, uh, uh, the mayor had asked anybody that was in attendance at these rallies, whether you were taking part, whether you were covering them uh, or whether you just simply were in and around them to go and get a test. So we decided to wait a couple of weeks until the last time we covered one of those protests uh, and went to the clinic to get it tested today. Uh, it, it, it's painful. It's not comfortable. It only lasts about 10 seconds, but it's 10 seconds that feels almost like an hour uh, than the couple of days of waiting to get the test back. We also decided to get... Uh, antibody tests just in case we had had it uh, previously. But it is something that, uh, you know, given the fact that I saw firsthand how quick these tests actually are uh, and the minimal supplies that are needed and the fact that this was not able to be carried out uh, on a widespread basis uh, is mind blowing. Uh, the, the lapse in ability to get this rolled out across the country. 
Testing will change things exponentially. That is our future as we go through the next phases of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Let's move to Tulsa because, uh, yeah, mid-pandemic, Donald Trump is holding a rally in uh, 24 hours from now. And and they are asking that anybody who attends this rally gets tested, correct? Absolutely, they are. Yeah, I mean, look, there are 20,000 people that are expected to be in attendance at the arena that the president is going to be at. Earlier today, his press secretary said that she it doesn't intend to be wearing a mask. Uh, neither will anybody else in the Trump entourage. Masks and sanitizer will be handed out to the people that are attending, but there's no not going to be any uh, kind of a measure or force for people to be you know told to wear these masks when they're inside. The greater issue here is that they're expecting roughly 100,000 people to descend on Oklahoma, or at least on Tulsa, within the next kind of 24 hours. And this is a problem for a state that is posting its highest numbers uh, of COVID cases yet, both across Oklahoma and across Tulsa. There was actually a uh, a lawsuit that went to the Oklahoma Supreme Court to try and stop the rally from happening because they felt it was just going to be too much of a super spreader. And just within the last few hours or so, uh, the state Supreme Court threw that case out. So this rally is going to take place. And what you said earlier about how there's been a remarkable spike in cases specifically through the Sun Belt from Florida over to California, that references back to what Donald Trump was saying in the early days, I believe it was March, where he was saying, no, this will burn out by April. And here we are. What are the numbers like today uh, for the United States as a whole? It's it's still trending in a scary direction, is it not? It, it is. I mean, look, the president had originally said that, you know, the number of cases would be 15 and then down to zero. And here we are in the United States on the plus side of 2,200,000 on the approach to 2,210,000. The death toll is rapidly approaching 119,000. And within the last few days, the Centers for Disease Control has said that sometime before uh, uh, the July 4th weekend, there is likely going to be another uh, increase by about 20,000 for the number of people who have died from a positive case uh, of COVID-19. This is an active virus. We're seeing it pop up and sprout up across all of these states in the south. uh, And it goes against that initial research that had said if it's warmer, if it's more humid, if there's lots of sunshine, that it's going to get rid of the virus. And there's been news on what's it called? Hydrochloroquine? Um, that, that that it, it like literally studies are showing that it does more harm than good. Yeah, and I mean, look, the FDA has pulled uh, their recommendation for using hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. It's been printed on their website, and this has now led to a secondary issue across the United States. The federal government went on this massive procurement to try and get as many doses of this pill as they possibly could, you know, starving people who actually need this pill for for, uh, for their own well-being. Uh, and now they're left with stockpiles of a pill that they no longer need, uh, and it will likely end up having to go to waste because they spent all this money trying to get a pill for a disease that there was no guarantee the pill would actually work for. Speaking of waste, you just got an email about Trump's plans to go somewhere to do something that is, I believe, a little bit wasteful, in my opinion. Yeah, look, the president is uh, going to head to Arizona on Tuesday, and he's actually going to be taking part uh, in in a, a bit of a roundtable with, you know, dealing with America's youth uh, at, at a church in Phoenix. But we now know as well that the president is going to travel to Yuma uh, on the border with Mexico, and he's going to survey uh, the amount of wall that's been built and the construction of this wall. You know, the president three years ago said that hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands of miles of wall would be built in his uh, first term. There's about 100 miles of wall that's been built, and much of that has simply been a refurbishment uh, of existing fencing that was already in place. But nonetheless, uh, for a photo op and to politicize uh, borders even more than they already have been, the president is expected to go there next week uh, and tour uh, this this newly refurbished uh, border between Mexico and Arizona. 
Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett, continuing our chat, checking in with Cicchini. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, is on the line. And Reggie, you and I go back and forth a lot. I, I'm constantly reaching out to you going, is this true? Because so much of what is happening in the United States you think can't possibly be accurate. And yesterday there was a story that AMC, basically the Cineplex the Canadian equivalent uh, in the United States, the big movie chain uh, said, you know what, when we reopen, we're, we're reopening and masks will not be mandatory. You're like, wow. Okay. Of all places in a movie theater, wouldn't that just be the most natural place to be protective of your fellow citizen? And there's breaking news on that today. Yeah, I mean, look, yesterday was was big. They said they didn't want to get drawn into, quote, political controversy by forcing people to wear a mask. It sparked a huge outrage on social media where people were saying, look, this is a public health crisis. This has nothing to do with politics. And all of a sudden, a major corporation realizes that their finances could potentially take a hit by the decisions that they've made. And today, AMC announcing within the last few hours that following immediate outcry, uh, they are now going to require people to wear a mask when they walk into theaters. Now, that could also pose problems for them. They could also lose money by people feeling that it's infringing on their rights. But at the end of the day, they chose to put a health crisis over politics. Well, when we think about going inside, I mean, we take the public health officer uh, recommendations very seriously here in British Columbia, and it's really working for us. And one of the overwhelming messages is if you have if you have to be indoors, if you're going to be indoors and physical distancing is not an option, then wearing a mask protects you and others. You know, that goes right along with washing your hands and not touching your face. These yeah, are and- really simple things we can do, right? Yeah, and look, this is a country where masks have been incredibly politicized, uh, starting mm-hmm. with the president who refuses to wear one when he is out in public, when he is around people, and that message carries across uh, a broad distance, especially to his base. But now that you have companies pushing back, saying, look, it, no shirt, no shoes, no service, now we're going to put no masks on that uh, on that door, and if you don't like it, don't come in. I love that as an example, because people were so angry at the idea of making you wear a mask. And it's like, hey, the sign's been on a wall at the bar in the restaurant for decades that you have to wear a shirt, have shoes, or you're not getting served here. And that's the right of any establishment. Now, I want to dial back to uh, what we were talking about with regard to the Trump rally, because I saw a tweet from the president. And And I still find it difficult to really process that this statement was made from a U.S. president, and I quote, any protesters, anarchists, agitators, looters, or lowlifes who are going to Oklahoma, please understand you will not be treated like you have been in New York, Seattle, or Minneapolis. It will be much diff- a much different scene. It almost feels like a, a threat if any American were to exercise their right to protest or, or speak freely outside of this Trump rally. Yeah, look, their constitutional right to uh, peacefully assemble. The problem here is that the president didn't discern from a peaceful protester and somebody who is an agitator or uh, are sparking violence in the middle of a protest. And with tens of thousands of people expected to gather and a curfew no longer in place uh, that was originally in place, uh, there is going to be a risk for people to be gathering. And the president using a kind of a strong armed approach like we saw already once in Washington when he dispersed uh, riot gear and riot crowds to try and deal with uh, some of these protesters. Uh, It is difficult for some people to pay attention to. It's also a note uh, that slams those Democratic uh, leaders of these states who have allowed these protests to continue on. Yes, some of them have had violence, but for the most part, there has been a message behind them. And again, this shows that the president is not paying attention to the uh, actual situation across the country. He's solely trying to get his base riled up by saying, look, these people are violent. They're from the far left. This is what we've been telling you about. 
Let's pivot away from the president for now and talk about what could possibly be the new administration if Joe Biden is to, A, secure the Democratic role and, and go up against Donald Trump as seems to be a foregone conclusion at this point. Um, but he's still being called the projective, right? The pro- projected. The presumptive. No, presumptive. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. I got to learn my U.S. political uh, terminology for November 3rd to go up against Donald Trump. And everybody's speculating who will he call upon to be his vice president. And there's been a lot of back and forth over this. Uh, give us the very latest on that, if you don't mind. Well, it is not going to be uh, uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar, who was once herself running to be president. She dropped out of the race late last night, said that she's going to push for Joe Biden to make that running mate uh, a person of color. Uh, you know, there are a number of people who are sitting atop most of the kind of uh, the, the lists that are, are being passed around, uh, namely Kamala Harris, uh, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, uh, Stacey Abrams, the failed gubernatorial candidate uh, from Georgia, also Tammy Duckworth, who is a uh, former uh, uh, veteran. Uh, or from uh, from from, uh, from the military, there are a number of people who are amongst this list, and we are slowly uh, weeding out those who are uh, white females because the the president, uh, the uh, rather the the former vice president, uh, has yes. already once said that he wants it to be a female. But now that we're in changing times right now, uh, he it, there's a push for him to now make it somebody who's more inclusive uh, of what the Democratic Party is across the country. Uh, and with this push now to have him choose a person of color, it really does start to kind of uh, uh, whittle that list down to just a very small few number of people is there a sort of established time frame where that choice is made when leading up to an election is there like a window or a by this date that that usually happens by where a vp is named it will be it will be sometime uh, within the next couple of weeks because look there's usually a convention that's taken place uh, within the next month but it's been pushed because of the virus so typically by June we know who that running mate is going to be you know in times uh, past you know somebody like Ted Cruz announced right off the bat when he was essentially dropping his name into the race uh, that he was choosing Carly Fiorina that is you know outside of the norm but we are very quickly approaching a moment where Joe Biden's team is going to have to get their uh, acting gear they're going to have to put a proper vet on somebody and they're going to have to make that announcement because he still is running a campaign right now. He still is not uh, the person who is going to be leading the Democrats, and he's still not the person who is going to become the president. This is still a race, and he needs to have that person with him to try and draw support in from people who still might be weary of an older white man running for president. So let's talk about the polling numbers. There are a couple more national polls released in the last 24 hours, right? Yes, uh, there was an AP poll, there was an NPR poll, and all of them show that President Donald Trump uh, is starting to lose his stamina more than he was just a couple of months ago. The most recent poll puts him about 8 to 10 points behind Joe Biden, but when you break it down, he is uh, struggling to gain support with white women around the United States. He's struggling with support from college-educated white men, but his real struggle right now comes from the African-American population and voter around this country, uh, where his uh, popularity amongst black voters is in the low 20s. And this is a president who says that he's done more for the black population than any other president in history, yet he only has about 20 percent approval. Well, he's done the most for everything on every subject than any other president in history. And that's like that's a T-shirt in in the post-Trump era, whenever that is, whether that's just a few months from now or four years plus from now. Um, Reggie, one more thing uh, before we wrap up here, uh, just kind of getting an idea as to whether or not that the fallout from the John Bolton book continues to hit Donald Trump. Uh, well, 
where he lives. He seems extraordinarily active uh, with regard to re-election on on Twitter these days. I'm not really sure when the president sleeps. Um, But that book, big interviews happening uh, and the book expected out on Tuesday. I saw Stephen Colbert uh, night before last hold up the book in the room and tap on it like I've already got it. So try stopping this sort of thing. Um, how how deep might the damage go for, for Donald Trump with this Bolton book? I mean, look, there have been a lot of books that have come out that have explained the chaos that, that we all have an idea of that runs rampant with inside the White House. You know, this is just another book that kind of mimics and echoes the stories that we've already heard. A lot of the information in there uh, is, is kind of amped up to try and, you know, ensure that John Bolton is going to be able to sell a book. It is going mm-hmm. to potentially sway and ha- make some waves with voters. The president's people, uh, including his former chief of staff, including the secretary of state, are all standing up and saying that much of what's in the book is a lie. But at the end of the day, the president is still fighting saying what's in that book is confidential. Confidential and classified, which makes you think there have to be a few truths in there that really make Democrats angry. Where were you when the country needed saving from this sort of behavior if those conversations with Chinese President Xi are actually based in fact? It's it's quite something to, to watch the, uh, the interviews with John Bolton. Always a pleasure to hang out with you, Reggie. Have a great weekend and uh, yeah, and try and put your feet up a little bit. You work an awful lot. And we're making you. you work extra hard. <laughs> Reggie Cicchini. Many British Columbians feel that that they're in a bit of limbo when it comes to their employment future, what it might look like. I mean, early on in this COVID-19 pandemic, we were just all sent home. Everybody just go home, stay home, stay, stay safe. Let's try and lock this down. As we open up, as the economy begins to, to make attempts to recover and until we can have some sort of treatment or even better a vaccine or eradicate COVID-19, we are in this. We are in it. We are in it together and we will get through it. But we got to crunch the numbers and the numbers can be difficult to consume because how COVID-19 has hit our workforce is profound. The Business Council of BC has actually uh, used a, a, a issued a, an economic review, and it's, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, it's bleak. So let's talk it through with the chief economist and vice president of the Council of BC, uh, Ken Peacock. Hi, Ken. Hello there, Jody. How are you? I'm doing really well, you know, trying to stay positive as we do in a pandemic. Everybody's trying to put their best fe- foot forward and believe that we will get through this together. But the workforce and how our economy has been impacted, certainly something that has British Columbians very worried. What what did your um, research find? Well, I, I, I agree with your opening assessment. Uh, our report, unfortunately, is bleak. Uh, there is a little bit of a glimmer of bright spot. I, I do think we, we do claw our way out of this. But uh, essentially, we, we looked at what this year looks like and then more significantly, perhaps more importantly, what next year might look like. And, and this year, we're expecting uh, near, nearly an 8% contraction in the provincial gross domestic product, which is the value of all goods and services produced in the economy. That's a very significant contraction. And then as we get into the second half of the year and reopening progresses, or actually even in the next couple of months, we're going to see a big jump in jobs. But our concern is when we move into the second and third quarters, after that initial rebound from reopening takes place, uh, I I think we're going to see a more muted employment growth profile. And and I say that because, um, you know, businesses are going to be struggling. Uh, 
organizations that have a lot of retail space or a lot of food services space that are paying big rents may look to consolidate. They may uh, close some some openings and outlets. And then while we're climbing out of this uh, this deep freeze that the domestic economy has been in, BC is going to be slammed by the global economic downturn. And the global economic backdrop, Jody, is actually to use your word, quite bleak indeed. So that's the big challenge we see is the global uh, situation weighing on BC's export sector while we're struggling to recover. So can I just ask you, just go back to that initial statement that you made with regard to the GDP, that 7.8% contraction in a year that perhaps things are tough, but there's not a pandemic. What is typical of sort of a a uh, balancing act of affordability and maybe some upheaval here and there. What would a, 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 a major contraction of GDP look like? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question because in this, in this situation, context is everything. So mm. in the uh, global financial crisis and the Great Recession, which was a deep recession, but, but it, actually BC came through it reasonably, in reasonably good shape, but still it was a big recession, uh, we contracted by 2.4%. So wow. in terms of magnitude, this downturn is three times the size of, the, uh, of what happened in 2009. So that's a big downturn. And, and there is the potential that there is risk on the downside. I would say the risk is weighted more towards the downside because of second waves. We've kind of assumed in the background of, of our analysis that BC continues to manage uh, the virus very well. And, and I say that I think we're going to see a second wave, but... We've now got equipment, we've got testing, uh, BC has good systems in place, the public is more aware, and awareness is much better. So I think when you consider that, if we do get a se- second wave, I think BC will be in a position to be much more targeted if there is a need to close sectors. So I don't see the second wave being a real huge impact on BC, and that's probably the little optimistic bit within our report. Other than that, it is quite dark. We'll take that piece of optimism. We're with Keith, or sorry, Ken Peacock, that is, Chief Economist and Vice President, uh, Business Council of BC. And you mentioned 2009, and when it comes to jobs that that are unsteady or you're temporarily laid off and that you get your job back and then all of a sudden your boss says, we got to cut corners and you're our corner this week and now it's a permanent job loss. Uh, we saw that uh, with the financial crisis of 2009. Um, if you're going to put what what your perspective is on on sort of next year or through the second wave and into next year versus what happened in 2009 are, are they uh, uh, around on par you're speculating of course into your crystal ball but or is one exponentially worse than the one being th- this pandemic this th- th- this one is significantly worse and and maybe to answer your question I'll uh, I'll come at it from from the employment perspective because the okay. jobs they really really do they, they, they are just gripping me, and I'm quite concerned about long-term uh, unemployment and the implications of it. But in the global financial crisis, over a period of about 11 months, uh, employment fell by 70,000. <laughs> this wow. time around, in two months, employment fell by 400,000. So you, you get some perspective just from those numbers. Now, we have to be... Um, you know, realistic about this, as we reopen, we're going to see a big jump. And we've already saw 40,000 jobs come back in the most recent labor force survey. And I think in the next one, we may see a bump uh, significantly larger than that and, and the subsequent month after. So we're going to get a big lift. But but because of those concerns I was talking about a moment ago, if we get to the end of the year and regain half or maybe a bit more than half, 250,000 jobs, 
I think that we would consider ourselves fortunate. I think that would be a good a good outcome for British Columbia. So, um, you know, back to the 70,000 down in 2009, we may be down 150 to 200,000 jobs at the end of this year. And it'll be a multi-year recovery process. It is quite something to behold. And in many of the polls and, and, and much of the research that we're hearing now is that um, this is disproportionately affecting certain sectors and certain um, age groups or even genders. Uh, women are being impacted greatly. Uh, young people certainly being impacted exponentially and certainly the youth market. I can't imagine coming out of high school and, and trying to get that summer job and work toward university and have no idea what any of that looks like moving forward. Um, definitely a great number of people at risk, but going back to the one, the one underlying, I just have to, my optimist in me is like, we will get through this. We are very resilient. The difference between now and 2009 is we do have governments actively protecting people from eviction or from going, you know, completely hungry. I've never been more glad to be Canadian than, than watching how as much debt as it's going to be for us, but how we're not going to let anybody fall in this yeah no and that this is this is a great point and it certainly differentiates this situation from the great depression people sometimes are you know conjuring up images of the great depression in in the current situation and i i, I like you just said i'm quick to point out uh, we have a social safety net and in this particular circumstance i think the government did respond appropriately because i mean they put it was an imposed shutdown and households were going to be reeling uh, financial impacts, rent, and all that. So that is the appropriate response. The, the, the challenge now, Jody, is removing that and uh, scaling it back and the timing, trying to do that and walk that fine line while the economy is struggling to uh, regain. And we need to see some significant upturn in employment uh, before we can scale back the, that assistance too much. But I'm confident we are going to see that in the next couple months. So I think the government is going to have to start turning its attention to, uh, to, to not spending as much money perhaps uh, going forward because it really is a big uh, economic hole from the fiscal perspective we're digging in. But you're totally right. Uh, that does differentiate this situation. But I, from I agree with you. I agree. Yeah, the, the difference between then and now is that, you know, hopefully we're not staring down epic long food lines here, uh, you know, people people going hungry. That That is that pivot. But yeah, b- stimulating the economy enough so that when people do find themselves out of work, they're not terrified to spend even a penny because nothing's going to grow if everybody just, you know, squirrels everything away for, for fear of what's coming next. So I think we have to just sort of take this one step at a time and, and really move forward in the best and, and maybe see changes in how some people do their work. I'm sure that you and I will be speaking again, and I certainly enjoyed uh, this conversation, Ken. So thanks for doing this. No, thanks for having me, Jody. Contact tracing is not about invading your privacy. It's about trying to mitigate and contain COVID-19 flare-ups wherever new test case positives might be found. So to give you an idea uh, of, of why this next phase of this pandemic management is so key, we'd like to welcome incoming president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Ann Collins, is on the line. Thanks for being with us, doctor. My pleasure. 
So even just today, the World Health Organization making the statement that the world is in a very new and dangerous phase and how people are so understandably fed up with being at home and being in lockdown, this virus is is still a huge threat and spreading at an incredible rate. Your perspective on sort of where we are within the pandemic and where contact tracing comes into play for Canadians. So we're, we're still early in this pandemic. We have to remember that this is only day 100 or 101, and, and most public health experts will tell, talk to us in terms of 18 to 24 months and, of course, about the second wave possibly in, in the fall. So contact tracing um, is critical um, in controlling the transmission of this disease, and but uh, contact tracing um, is a person-to-person um, exercise or procedure. So um, the announcement this week about digital contact tracing apps is um, should serve as a very useful aid in this critical process. So I love the idea of this app. Personally, somebody put out there on social media, would you do this? And I was like, plus one, sign me up. Because uh, from what I understand, from what the prime minister said, anonymous, no location services, lives in the background of your phone. All it's doing is sitting there in the event that someone that I come near tests positive, I get a notification to go get tested. That to me seems like it makes all kinds of sense because I've got probably about 100 apps on my phone that are tracking my every move and every purchase and I don't seem to mind those. Why not with COVID-19? Exactly. And and as as we've said, this is it should be a useful tool provided mm-hmm. people use it. And of course, uh, Privacy is one of the issues around whether or not is it is picked up. Other things we have to remember is that not everybody has a, a smartphone or the the bandwidth to um, to employ such an app. So uh, we we have to be mindful, and government has to be mindful of those things as well that could create mm-hmm. disparity. And uh, we've already seen disparities with this virus. So. Um, I think that it is something that um, people will certainly be anxious to explore and hopefully to download. We're with Dr. Ann Collins, the incoming president of the Canadian Medical Association. And this is, I've only got two minutes left here and maybe a loaded question, but I often get emails from people going, why don't you just let your immune system do its thing? You don't, why is everybody freaking out about this virus? What do you say to the people who say we are being overly cautious with regard to COVID-19? Well, that's a good point. It's an interesting point. And and we know that for the most part, if your immune system is healthy, you probably will do well with this virus. But you can also transmit it to people who do not have healthy immune systems. So it's really about being, you know, the good citizens that Canadians are in terms of um, in trying to uh, reduce and prevent transmission. And taking care of our elders and taking care of our vulnerable people whose immune systems might be compromised. Uh, Where do you stand on wearing masks? Um, Masks uh, are are an easy thing to do. Um, People um, who work in ORs and so on have been wearing them every day for most of their working lives. And it will help protect. And again, it will help protect our vulnerable 
It's the simple, easiest thing, in my opinion, that we can do for our community, for our neighbors. Wearing a mask, unless you're wearing an N95 type respirator mask that requires you getting fitted for that. If you're out in public and you're wearing a mask, you're making a gesture to those around you. And on the flip side of that, there are some people who cannot wear masks due to underlying health issues. So don't judge people who aren't wearing masks. We got to do that be calm, be kind, and say, stay safe mantra that we get daily in BC from Dr. Bonnie Henry. So, uh, Dr. Collins, we do appreciate you taking some time to sort of just give us your your take on on contact tracing and, and how important it is for all, all of us to be a part of this if we're going to get through it together. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Time to talk about this article that I saw in Business of Vancouver that caught my attention. It's about how the temporary layoffs that so many people have uh, found to be their reality might just become permanent layoffs, whether employers or employees like it or not. We have Alia Varani, employment lawyer from Samfiru, excuse me, Samfiru to Markin on the line to talk about the laws surrounding temporary layoffs and and how long they can be held in limbo like that. Aliyah, thank you so much for lending us your expertise today. Of course. Thank you, Jody, for having me. So I started reading this article in Business of Vancouver because the headline was like, you don't really maybe know this, but your layoff might become permanent without anybody really knowing the facts behind it. Because so many people are in a similar situation right now uh, that the information isn't being disseminated about what could just happen. Is it 120 days? What are the rules around temporary layoffs? Yes, good question. So being put on a temporary layoff as, as you know, kind of contemplated by this the statute or the situation. It's an extraordinary right that the employer has. It kind of has to be written into a contract or regular to the industry, um, or you have to agree to it for that to be the case. And if you did, then maybe you want to pay attention to the 16 weeks passing because then you're going to have a right to these minimum entitlements of severance. But I think that the thing is that most people don't know is that if you're on a temporary layoff, you can treat this as a constructive dismissal already and claim for severance. And and maybe to the extent that when this the 16 weeks passes, it'll provide more certainty that you're you're owed at least these minimum entitlements, and you have a right to pursue your severance pay up to the full entitlement. So, what? How is entitlement of severance calculated? Is it different for each individual workplace? Is it based on how long you've worked at a place, how much you make at a place, what your status is? How how is that? What are the rules or laws around that? Yes, severance pay is it's. Your full severance entitlement is determined according to a number of factors. And those factors are your age, your length, and your type of employment, and importantly, the availability of other jobs. So, so kind of looking at all of those factors, there's, you, make an, you can make an assessment according to the rules that apply or rules look at those factors and, and determine what your full entitlement is. So it's going to be based on a specific look at each person's situation um, according to those factors. So what happens if those weeks go by and the automatic, um, what do you call it, the, the temporary laid off employee will have been deemed uh, terminated at a certain point? What if the employer doesn't want that, doesn't want to lose that employee? What, what steps need to be taken in order to ensure that they can hire that employee back? So they, they can hire the employee back at any time. But if they don't, then they have to pay out severance. You can't really keep right. everybody in limbo. I think that's the yeah. problem is everybody's looking for some more certainty. And it's, it's really up to the employer to treat 
the, to treat the employee fairly in this circumstance and either hire them back. And if, if they don't and the time passes by and the 16 weeks passes by, then it's clear that they're owed at least these minimum entitlements. But um, right. So then you have to pay and, out the severance. And how might that severance impact the CERB or would it if they were collecting the CERB? Would that then sort of upset that apple cart a little bit? Could this be a domino effect where people just have to, I'm just trying to find a way to put so many British Columbians who might be in this limbo in the know of what action they should consider taking here. Yeah, absolutely. So what I would recommend is as these 16 weeks um, come up for them, they they should be un, they should be aware that they have a sever- an entitlement to severance. And if they're right. receiving CERB already, they probably want to know how this severance entitlement uh, could impact CERB or their CERB benefits. And right now, the government has has said that a severance payment will not necessarily interfere with receiving CERB benefits. But those rules are are always changing. So it's important to to keep in mind that uh, they could be updated or the government could give more direction about the interplay between CERB and severance. But right now, they've they've got statements just on their own website that say that that, um, CERB and severance do not necessarily affect each other. So the fact that you're entitled to severance and you may be receiving CERB, it it shouldn't prevent you from, from seeking your entitlements from your employer. If you're put in a situation where your layoff becomes permanent after the 16 weeks, we're with employment lawyer Alia Virani, and it's really a complicated sort of dance, I guess, between the employee and the employer when you get to that 16-week spot, because nobody wants to be out of a job. So few of the hundreds of thousands of British Columbians who find themselves on a temporary layoff right now ever imagined ever leaving their jobs, and yet here they are, and then need to have that uncomfortable conversation with their employer, who might also be struggling to make ends meet, to say, I am entitled to severance here if I'm going to stay in this limbo, but I totally want to be rehired by you when you are able to hire me back. Um, Are there any ways of softening that conversation or any pieces of advice that you can offer for those who might need to have this difficult conversation with their employer? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that it's important to have your specific circumstances reviewed um, and maybe have suggestions given based on your particular situation. But um, what you can do if you're prepared to accept waiting, then know that it that it is potentially giving up your right to to receive your severance entitlement. And you have to be careful right. about that and make sure that's something that you want to do. And if you're otherwise looking for certainty and you want to move on, and I think both both sides, both the employer and the employee, could benefit from some certainty in the situation then there's nothing that prevents you from seeking your severance entitlement immediately um, subject to having your contract reviewed so to ensure that it it doesn't limit you in any way. Um, And then certainly after the 16 weeks, you'll you'll have that minimum entitlement and and most people will actually have their full severance entitlement available to them um, at that time. So so it's really, it's it's dependent on what the employee would like to do, but... um, but it shouldn't prevent them from moving forward one way or the other, um, if, if that makes sense. It does make sense because what I'm hearing from you, I think, Alia, is that um, each person's individual situation is unique and it depends on how complex your employment has been, how your salary structure is. 
uh, what kind of employment agreement you might be under, which is why an employment lawyer like yourself is so handy at times like this. How are you conducting business now at Samfiru to Mark? And are you, are you doing most of what you're doing virtually? Is it Zoom calls? Is it over the phone? If somebody is looking to speak with you, how, how would they get in touch with you to, uh, and, and what would it cost perhaps to, to have that oh, conversation absolutely. with someone like you? Well, I, I think it's really important for people to understand what their situation is. Um, mm-hmm. so, so along those lines, we take a lot of appointments over the phone. Um, I offer free consultations um, for people who are looking for some more clarity because you don't really know how to make a decision if you don't know what rules apply to you um, and, and exactly. what, what you could seek to obtain or what, um, what's fair in your circumstances without receiving that, you know, that advice. So, yeah, we've, we've been taking tons of calls, and lots of people are very curious right now to see how these changes affect them. And, and it is a very confusing time. You can see these rules are changing uh, constantly to try to adapt to this environment. And I think everybody is just looking for some certainty. I think the short answer is, is that most people are going to be entitled to severance, at least in some form, after the 16 weeks. And if they're looking to, you know, return to work or, or extend this layoff period, then that's another that's another consideration, but but regardless, they should probably get some sort of advice about what uh, what they can seek to gain or lose based on what they do. Right, what they might be do. Really appreciate your perspective. Thank you for lending us your expertise. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.